0: It's Easter Sunday, and I want it to be all about Jesus. So let's turn together in God's Word as we read from John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter And the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, giving thanks to God for his word how it speaks to us today. When I'm on any car journey at the minute with Rosa in the car, she asks for one song on repeat over and over and over again. No matter how short the journey is, I get asked to play one song and it's We Don't Talk About Bruno from the Disney film Encanto. And... uh, we, spend, we seem to spend a lot of time saying we don't talk about Bruno. His name is mentioned a lot for someone that we don't talk about. And uh, the reasons why we don't talk about Bruno are that he, he's got a seven-foot frame. Rats along his back, when he calls your name, it all fades to black. You know the song? He told me that my fish would die in the next day. Dead. He told me I'd grow a gut, and just like he said, no, no, he said that all my hair would disappear. Now look at my head. It's not just Bruno that we don't like talking about. A quick Google search tells us the taboo subjects that we shouldn't bring up in social company or at the office. We shouldn't speak of sex, money, politics, or religion, especially in Northern Ireland. They're taboo subjects that you just don't speak of. (laughs) Somebody making fun of me over there? (laughs) That's what Rachel says to me when I go home. (laughs) Death is another one of those subjects that we just don't talk about. It's, It's a taboo subject. It doesn't make for a great conversation, and we're advised to steer clear of it. The actor Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid to die, just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) And then in another interview, he said about the struggle against death, it's absolutely stupefying, and it's terror. We can appreciate his honesty here. We can sympathize with Woody Allen, His assessment of things is really honest. But his avoidance tactic on this issue is foolish. Just not talking about it will not make it go away in the same way that if you're playing hide and seek and you just do this, it doesn't really hide you. It hides from you everything that is around you, but you can still be seen. You're burying your head in the sand or in your hands and hoping that you can't be seen and basically, Woody Allen is adopting the same strategy when it comes to death. And I think many people do the same thing. Let's not talk about it and pretend it's not a reality. It doesn't transform what's in front of you when you cover your eyes or when you stop talking about it. It just blocks it from view for a while. And we don't like to talk about our mortality, our limited nature, but we really should because it's something Every single one of us needs to face a time to be born and a time to die. And the reason Christians celebrate today is that because of Jesus, death doesn't have to be stupefying in its terror. Paul the Apostle says that because of Jesus, death has lost its sting. In the same way that darkness can be terrifying, but light overcomes it 100% of the time, we can come against death with Jesus, who has defeated death. Like You walk into any room, no matter how dark it is, and you light a match, flick a lighter, put on a torch, light wins 100% of the time. Light overcomes darkness, and Jesus is the light of the world. And the whole reason that John wrote his gospel was this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants you to have life in the face of death. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. That's why John wrote, and this Easter Sunday morning, we're thinking about the resurrection, that Jesus defeated death, that he rose. And first of all, we're going to think about the vindication of Jesus the vindication of jesus you see if there's no resurrection then jesus is just another good guy who said some inspirational quotes that we could frame in our kitchen or put as a sticker on our wall we could get some of the things that he said printed on a t-shirt blessed are the poor in spirit love your enemies cool sayings and maybe you're in church this morning and you respect jesus You like him, you're fascinated by some of the things that he said or did, and you wouldn't want anybody to speak negatively about him, but you wouldn't call yourself a Jesus follower. You haven't surrendered your life completely and wholly to him. You haven't confessed your sin before him. And if there was no resurrection, that might be an okay position to be in because Jesus might just be another religious guru, He might just be another world leader who did some good things and said some inspirational words. But in verses 8 and 9 of John chapter 20, he says something that you will need to deal with if you're going to dismiss Jesus as just another religious leader. He says this, The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And the words here, from Scripture, could refer to the whole of the Old Testament as a block of teaching, one Scripture. Or it could refer to one verse in the Old Testament, something like Psalm 16, verse 10, where it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. On Friday night, Philip was reminding us that Jesus said three important words on the cross. He said, it is finished. Jesus had fulfilled all the Old Testament scriptures that had been written speaking about him. He prophesied about his life and death. And yes, there were still further prophecies to be fulfilled. But those were things that weren't in his hands. Things like he would be assigned a grave with the wicked and and the rich that his, not one of his bones would be broken. And if Jesus remained dead, then people could speculate, well, he said it was finished, but did God accept the sacrifice? If he remained dead, was Jesus really stronger than sin? Was he really stronger than death? I mean, a Roman court declared him guilty. Maybe there's no smoke without fire. Maybe he is guilty. There were plenty of people who despised him, Plenty of people who were glad to see the back of him. He'd been called a, a drunkard or a wine-bibber because of the kind of company that he kept. He was hanging around with and eating with sinners, tax collectors. Maybe he was just receiving punishment for his own misdemeanors. And it would be possible to jump to that conclusion if Jesus had remained Dead except for the inconvenient fact that the tomb was empty when Mary got there. Jesus was raised to life, showing that God the Father agreed with the the statement of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. If you want to think in banking terminology, the check cleared. God accepted the payment, and Jesus rose again to life. It is is finished. In his book, Know the Truth, Bruce Milne says this, it's difficult to see how we can interpret the resurrection except as an overwhelming vindication of his divine claims. Mary had gone to the tomb while it was still dark and the stone had rolled away, the body of Jesus wasn't there, and she returned then to Peter and John with the report that body snatchers had, you know, rubbed salt in their wound. It's not, is it not enough that Jesus died this horrific, humiliating death now to kind of add agony to their humiliation? They've stolen the body as well. Could they just not let him be? Could they not let him rest in peace? They've snatched the body as well. Final indignity. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, she said, and we do not know where they have laid him. And Peter and John race to the tomb. John gets there first, then Peter. I love the detail of this gospel. Disciples racing to the tomb. And this is John's gospel, so he has to get the information in that he was the one who got there first. So if you run into the tomb, you've got to select carefully who you're going to run with. Like, if I was in a a race, I would not have Rick Hill running with me because he's going to get there first. Or Brian Givens, because he's actually got a really good marathon time as well. And so there's a bit of staff competition at at some stage. You know, Brian did hold the record for the the staff marathon time, and then Rick pipped him to it. And so Rick was in number one, Brian was number two, I was in number three. I think Rick has now got the top three times, so we're all off the podium, and it's Rick Hill in one, two, and three, Right? But I love the detail of this. John and Peter run into the tomb, and the beloved disciple, John gets that. See, if I was writing a gospel story, I would get it in that I won the race. That's what John does here. He says, I, I got there first, I won the race. But he doesn't enter the tomb first, he gets there first and he hesitates. Peter arrives second at the tomb, but typical Peter, he's not hesitating. He's in with two feet, straight into the tomb. If I was going to run to the tomb, I'd get Andy Moore, Catherine Foster, one of those slower people I'd run. run. <laughs> John beats Peter to the tomb. He gets there first and, and but Peter goes straight in two feet. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. John hesitated outside, Peter straight in, but. Peter goes in and sees, but John goes in and believes. Peter only saw, but John believed. He hadn't seen the resurrected Jesus yet. He'd just seen an empty tomb, and it was enough for him to have confidence and belief that Jesus had risen from the grave. The pieces of the puzzle started to fit together for John. The folded grave clothes are not the work of a, a hurried grave robber who snatched the body this is the deliberate work of someone who has risen from the dead folded the grave clothes and left them neatly to one side as a way of saying I'll not be needing those anymore thank you very much I don't need those clothes anymore because grave clothes will no longer be necessary for me and the resurrection and the life he folded it and set it aside forever. His resurrected body is no longer subject to weakness or decay. If Jesus had a medicine cabinet, he would bin it no more aspirin, no more lemsip, no more neurophan. No more plasters, no more antiseptic wipes, cancel the biopsy, the chemo appointment, and the surgery schedule for next month. Jesus had undone the curse of sin. He deletes the undertaker's number from his mobile phone because death shall be no more. The old order of things has passed away, and Jesus is the first fruits. He shows us what it's like when we trust in Him we too experience power over the grave. Death shall be no more. Like Joseph said to his brothers all those years ago, you know, Joseph with his multicolored coat and his brothers tried to harm him and tried to, you know, throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery and all these horrendous things happen to him and he gets unjustly imprisoned and eventually there's a famine in the land and his brothers come needing the food that Joseph can supply to them and And he reveals that he is Joseph in this position of power. And they're nervous because because now Joseph is in power and they think he's gonna get his own back. Joseph's gonna trample all over us. And Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so Jesus is unjustly punished, nailed to a cross, and rises again victorious and says to those who kneeled him there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. N. T. Wright says of the resurrection, it was not a redefinition of death, it was death's reversal. And the demonstration of God's power is unparalleled. No other world religion, no other world leader makes this claim. Nothing comes close. And I know the Christian church feels under attack today. I know you feel vulnerable. I know you feel naive. I know you feel foolish and stupid. But it's always been that way. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it's the wisdom of of God, Psalm 23, he restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because of my bank bonds? Because of my academic record? Because of my sporting achievements? Because of the places I've visited? No, because you are with me, Lord Jesus. I will fear no evil. This is what God has been doing all along the reversal of the curse. In the story of Esther, her relative Mordecai, a Jew was going to be hanged on gallows that were built really high, specifically for him by an evil racist called Haman. And in chapter seven, we read what actually happens on these gallows. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Reversal. The instrument that was supposed to see the end of Mordecai actually saw the end of his enemy, reversal, savior of Calvary, costliest victory, darkness defeated, and Eden restored. Through Jesus, God defeats darkness. Again, in the book of Esther that I've been reading recently, we read these words. Now, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. and The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. When they hoped to gain mastery over Jesus by the cross, the reverse occurred. And Jesus gained mastery over death. It's how God saves. When God seems to be killing us, says Tim Keller. I've mentioned him once or twice in the old sermon. When God seems to be killing us, he's actually saving us. Jesus embraces the consequences of our sin and shows himself to be stronger than them. The grave clothes are no longer needed by Jesus. More than that, they're no longer needed for all who trust in him. You and I get to set aside the grave clothes. Death doesn't get the final say in Jesus' life and if you trust in him, it won't get the final say in your life either. In Christ you have a future that nothing in this world can give you and nothing in this world can take from you. You have a future that cannot perish, spoil, or fade in Jesus. That will give you confidence on the worst days of your life. That will give you peace when everything else is fallen apart. That will enable you to be a really good friend to people who are anxious and afraid. A really good friend to people who have messed up and are in a terrible state. You'll be able to get alongside them and say, God is our refuge and strength, very present help in times of trouble. Not you, not me, not what I bring to the table, not what you bring to the table, God. In Christ, you have a future that nothing in this world can give you and nothing in this world can take from you. In this passage, we see the vindication of Jesus. God agrees with Jesus' assessment. It is finished. We see the vindication of Jesus, but finally and really quickly, we also hear the voice of Jesus. We hear the voice of Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you'd carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary wondered, is this man standing before me, the gardener? Wondered if he stole the body? Wondered if he received payment from those who stole the body? Maybe he'd taken some cash, turned a blind eye while the robbers did their worst. And like the disciples on the road to a mess in Luke's gospel, Mary is initially kept from recognizing Jesus. She doesn't recognize that it's him. It's only when he says her name that she responds with the confession of his identity, Rabboni, teacher. Jesus tells her not to hold on to him. Don't cling to me. And yet, a couple of verses later, he tells Thomas to touch him and see the hands and the scars on my hands and my side. Why does he tell Mary, "Don't touch me, don't cling to me," and tell Thomas, "Touch me"? Is Jesus hypocritical? No. In this situation, you see, Mary thinks I'll just hold on to him, and Jesus is trying to say to her here, "I'm not some kind of rabbit's foot. I'm not a lucky charm." not a genie's lamp or a a fortune cookie. This resurrected body that I have is permanent. I will ascend to heaven as a resurrected human being with a, a physical body that will never perish, spoil, or fade. I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. The promised Holy Spirit will come and be my presence with you forever. You will never be alone. You don't need to cling to me because the Holy Spirit's coming. His presence will continue through the Holy Spirit. Notice that it's Jesus' voice that makes all the difference. When he calls her name, she knows him. Just like he said in John chapter 10, when he talks about himself as the good shepherd, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. When I was at Camp America... Uh, we were thinking about the voice of God and looking at this passage in John 10. And I remember uh, as a counselor or youth leader at this camp in in Minnesota, we used to take the kids out to this huge play field, uh, sports field, and we would have uh, had a small group each that we were responsible for. And one of the things that we did early on in the camp was that we blindfolded the children Took them into the middle of the playfield and spun them around to kind of disorientate them so they didn't really know where they were. And then the counselors all would have gone to the edge of the field, and there's maybe like over 100 kids in the middle of this field, blindfolded and completely disorientated. And the counselors would be around the edge of the field, and then we had a list of the kids who were in our group, and we had to call them by name. And the winning group was the one that got all their kids into the group first. And you could also try and lure some other kids into your group who weren't. If you, if you knew your name, their names, you could call them. I was at a distinct advantage because I had a Northern Irish accent. And the kids could always recognize my voice. So I'm going, Cody, <laughs> over here, mate. <laughs> and the Americans are going, Cody, Cody. There's an American here this morning. Sorry, really, terrible, terrible American accent. I was at an advantage at calling kids into my group, but I was at disadvantage trying to coax anyone to come and be part of my group because my accent gave me away. They ran from me if they weren't in my group and they came to me really quickly because my voice was distinctive. Mary turned to Jesus and recognized him when she heard his voice. The prophets of doom are really easy to discover right now about church. There's lots of despair about the church if we'll ever recover from the impact of the pandemic. Church attendance is on the decline. Is it a good time to become a pastor? (laughs) Is it a good time to call a pastor? I mean, who would want to come to us in the middle of a pandemic? People are running seminars and workshops as to what the church needs to do post-pandemic and there are as many opinions as there are people. And I have to admit that for myself, there have been days when I've wondered about how the church will recover. I've had many doubts about my own ability to lead in a post-pandemic society. And then I read words like this from the mouth of Jesus. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is calling people outside the flock to be part of his flock and his voice still carries authority. That's our hope. While Jesus is still calling people to himself by name, we have no reason to lose hope for the church of Jesus Christ. We have no excuse to down tools and every reason to give ourselves fully to the purposes of God. While Jesus is still calling people by name, we should have boundless energy so that his voice can be heard in the world. I remember being in the octagon at Coleraine University, not U- UFC, but just was a room called the octagon. And a minister from this denomination, John Woodside, who was minister in Kilkenny and Drakota, told story after story of unchurched and de churched people coming to know Jesus. And I remember sitting there with tears just rolling down my cheeks as he told story after story. And in that moment, I prayed that I wouldn't just get to hear stories like this, but it would be my experience too, that I would see people come to know Jesus in my lifetime. And I've seen it here. I've seen God at work calling people by name. And it's an unbelievable privilege to be a part of it. And I've no doubt that that will happen again. I have no doubt that God will do it again. He speaks in listening to his voice. New life the dead receive. He spoke light in the darkness. If you're a Christian today, Jesus called you by name. He knows your name and he called you to follow him. His voice calmed the wind and the waves. He called Peter and Andrew to follow him and they left their nets and followed him. They left everything they knew. They left their livelihood. They left all that was familiar. They left the family business. If you are a Christian, it's because the resurrected Jesus has called you by name to follow him. And if he called you by name, why would he not call any other name? Whose name could he not call? Who are you going to write off? All Jesus needs to do is call their name. You pray like crazy that God would call their name through Christ. That's all he needs to do. You see, we cannot be neutral when it comes to the resurrection. You either accept it or you reject it. To be undecided about the resurrection is to reject it. I remember being at that same camp in America. I was getting out of the boat in a Mississippi River. We're going on a canoe trip. And I was the last person out of the boat. I had one foot in the boat and I stepped onto the bank. <laughs> And the boat started to move. And in my head, I was thinking, bank or boat? Bank or boat? And it, the problem was it took too long to make that decision. And neither of those options were possible any longer. And a third option emerged, Mississippi River. And you see, it's okay for a period of time to be bank or boat, to be agnostic. Did the resurrection happen? Well, I don't know but it's not okay to live the whole of your days thinking I'm just not decided because not decided is rejection. The the ship is sailing and if you're undecided, then you're not on it. You're saying no to Jesus. You're saying no to the cross. You're saying no to forgiveness. You're saying no to eternal life. Don't do it. Say yes to Jesus. He's calling your name this morning. Say yes to Jesus. He's our only hope in life and death. My prayer is that on the final day, none of you would be missing. That every single one of you and more would be present. Life is short. We are a vapor. Jesus has other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He says, I must bring them also. Do you know what? Jesus is going to rescue people. You're Uh, decision now as the church of Jesus Christ here in Carmonia is am I going to get involved in this amazing project that's going to last to eternity I must call them they will listen to his voice will you get his voice out will you continue to be on mission collectively as the people of God individually in your lives will you continue to be the people that God uses so that the voice of Jesus gets out there He must bring them. They will listen to his voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Are you going to give your lives for it? It's his voice that gives confidence to a post pandemic church. The resurrection opens our eyes to the vindication of Jesus and opens our ears to the voice of Jesus. Mary turned towards him when he called her name. See Mary weeping. Where is he laid? As in sorrow she turns from the empty tomb, hears a voice speaking, calling her name. It's the master, the Lord, raised to life again. The voice that spans the years, speaking life. Stirring hope, bringing peace to us. Will sound till he appears, for he lives. Christ is risen from the dead. We might not talk about Bruno. But we can and should talk about death and the only one who conquered it. Our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. It's his name that gives confidence to us as the people of God and gives us hope for the days ahead. He's calling you to follow him this morning. If you don't know him, why don't you surrender your life today? He's calling you by name. By his spirit, he's saying, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. May you find that rest. May you find that hope. May you find that purpose and forgiveness and joy everlasting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. Let us pray. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering son. Endless is the victory. Thy, or death, has won. We thank you this morning for Jesus the risen Lord who is present with us to give our lives purpose and meaning. We pray Lord God that you would help us to be mindful of your vindication of your son that you raised him from the dead according to the scriptures. And that you would give us confidence in his voice as he calls us by name to follow him. May we be Jesus' people in the world for his glory and our own joy. Amen.